0: Well, this is the end, my only friend, the end. The end of the book of Acts, the end of 23 months of studying the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Early Church, and the Acts of the Holy Spirit, the Acts of Peter, Stephen, Philip, and Paul, the Acts of Luke, Barnabas, Ananias, and Sapphira, Priscilla, and Aquila, John, Mark, Gamaliel, Simon, Alexander, Lydia, Sceva, the unfortunately named Dorcas, and Crispus, and Porcius Festus, the acts of several Herods, and at least one Ethiopian eunuch. Acts that take place in the Holy Temple of Jerusalem, marketplaces in Asia Minor, filthy and bloody prisons across the Roman Empire, the throne room of kings, the debating places of exalted Greek philosophers, treacherously drowsy lamp-lit rooms with third-floor windows that are easy to fall out of, and aboard a doomed ship lost for weeks in a storm. Acts such as preaching the crucified Messiah, proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom, performing powerful miracles, and persevering through relentless persecution. Two years worth of Acts in 28 beautiful chapters. In all of these Acts and many more, really I'm just scratching the surface, we have seen the thing that we talked about way back in the very first sermon of this series, which was called Church Like a Flame. I reread my notes from that, from that sermon and was I gave summaries about what Acts would be like and then I didn't look at that sermon again. So I was really curious to, to look back in it and see if those are the things that we talked about. Um, church like a flame. And, and was not surprised. But yeah, we, we, we covered those things in depth over and over. Church like a flame. The Holy Spirit arrived in flames and from that moment human history would be changed forever by those who felt its spark. Evangelism was the fuel to the fire, first to the Jews in and around Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, these ever-increasing spheres, and finally to the ends of the earth, as Jesus commanded. And who was it that resided at the ends of the earth to receive the flame of the Holy Spirit's power? Who did the flame eventually go to? The Gentiles. Gentiles, who were finally welcomed to the salvation party, beginning with a vision from Peter and culminating in the steadfast missions of Paul and others, leading this morning to the center of the Gentile world, the capital of Earth's mightiest empire at the time, Rome itself. But if the Holy Spirit was the flame and evangelism was the accelerant, there are two sources of fuel for the fire. One was community, the other was persecution. Our heroes were not solo artists. They were a team, a community. They were a team, a team that occasionally bickered. Peter and Paul had their bickers, Paul and Barnabas had their bickerings. Um, A team that required some players be cut from the team. Cheaters with false faith, like Ananias and Sapphira. Or greedy opportunists with idolatrous hearts, like Simon Magus. A team that wasn't perfect by any stretch, but who had each other's backs, praying for imprisoned leaders. Selling land to ensure physical needs were met for all people. Singing together in chains collecting peace offerings between Jew and Gentile, suffering together, breaking bread together, celebrating together, grieving together, and experiencing the fullness of God's goodness together as a team that welcomed outsiders as family. When enemies sought to crush them, that's the persecution aspect, it only fanned the flames. As the church fled oppression, they spread like seeds throughout the Roman Empire, while the witness of faithfulness even to death encouraged Christian and non-Christian alike to consider the power of martyrdom. In Acts, the church was a flame that could not be suppressed, fueled by the God who sent his Son and his Spirit to start the fire. And now, we've reached the end. This morning, we'll finish the Acts of the Apostles. Since chapter 12, and really, since Stephen's speech in chapter 7, and really, since Jesus' command in chapter 1, we have anticipated the gospel, a word that means good news, um, the gospel about Jesus' resurrection kingdom arriving in the center of the ends of the earth, Rome. We've anticipated that right from the, the, the last words of Jesus, which are the first words of Acts. We've looked forward to the gospel reaching Rome. Paul himself had set his sights on Rome since at least chapter 19, which was nearly a third of the book ago. He said he got a vision from God that he would end up in Rome. And after many journeys and legal fiascos, Will finally arrive in the capital. We will reach the end of the story of Paul, meaning we will reach the end of the story of the Acts of the Apostles. But that's not to say that we've reached the end of the story of the Acts of the Church, or of course the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Acts is not over, not even close. We are living in the story of the book of Acts to this day, as the flame of the Spirit continued to spread, eventually ending up in this little Canadian village of Clyde, Alberta which, by the way, is the culmination of human history. When it it arrived in Clyde, that was the high point of all human history. But the end of Paul's story and the end of Acts comes abruptly. Luke cuts it off sharply, perhaps leaving us wanting to know more, or perhaps after two years of studying, leaving us wishing there was way, way less. Maybe, I'm not sure where you stand. But as we'll see, though this is the end, the end is not the end. Let's read chapter 28. We'll start with verses 11 to 16. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered on, in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there, we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day, the south wind came up, and on the following day, we reached Puteoli. There we found some brothers who invited us to spend a week with them. And so, there it is, you guys, and so we came to Rome. The brothers there had heard that we were coming and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the Three Taverns to meet us. At the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. There it is. They finally come to Rome. To get to Rome, they had to first leave Malta. So Luke, the landlubber, gives us a few more details about their journey, which we will call upon the Big map missions to help us with. We're looking over here, obviously, following the red arrows. After three months enjoying the hospitality in Malta, which is this tiny little island right here, after three months there, they board a similar ship as the doomed grain freighter that they had been on that that, uh, was adrift at sea and eventually capsized near Malta. This ship, this new ship, had a figurehead, which you know the term figurehead today is for like a ruler who doesn't really have any power. It's just by title. Ships, that's a shipping term. So ships would have a figurehead at the front. It would be an image of a god. Um, the god who would be protecting them on their, their journey. And Castor and Pollux, uh, the Heavenly Twins as they're known, they were common figureheads for, for sailors in those days. Castor and Pollux were the patrons of navigation, and they were beloved by sailors across the Mediterranean world. Castor and Pollux are two stars in the constellation of, I'm guessing Bob knows. He doesn't know. That's That seems like a thing Bob would know. Castor and Pollux are stars in the, they are part of the Gemini constellation, which was considered a sign of good fortune for sailors at sea. If you could see Gemini, that was considered lucky. There was probably practical reasons too, because that was maybe a guiding star, I'm not sure. But Castor and Pollux, they, they're stars that, cons- that were considered good fortune. For Luke, mentioning the heavenly twins was a cheeky bit of foreshadowing, I think. Paul and his companions would arrive safely to their destination, but not under the guidance of some silly superstition about the stars. Rather, they arrive in Rome under the care and protection of the god above the storm who had promised his servant Paul and all who accompanied him that he would indeed reach Rome in order to proclaim the name of Jesus. Never mind Castor and Pollux. I think Luke mentions them to be like, this is what the sailors thought was protecting them, but we know why they really arrived safely in Rome, don't we guys? And so from tiny Malta, they head to the much larger Sicily, and then on to the boot of Italy, the toe of the boot of Italy, and the mainland at Regium. From there, they sailed about 180 nautical miles in about two days to Putioli. There, in Putioli, as in Sidon at the start of their journey, Paul was given the grace, uh, given the, um, the the luxury of going off ship for a week to spend with Christians there in Sidon. That's how he started his journey, and he ends his journey the same way. He gets to spend a week in Putioli hanging out with the brothers, as it says. Um, after this stay, Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus begin following the Appian Way, which was this massive, at this point, already 350-year-old paved highway that ran north, south, in Italy and connected Rome to all kinds of other important cities. Despite the well-constructed and carefully protected nature of this, this road, it must have been incredibly tiresome for Paul, having faced the hardships at sea just months ago and perhaps more, with more difficulty anticipating, not worrying, Paul wasn't a worrier, but just anxious to get to Rome finally, and anticipating, wondering what the reception would be like. I'm sure, I'm sure he wondered how the the Roman officials would receive him, how the the Jews of the city of Rome would receive him, and how the Christians there would receive him. He's just wanting to get to Rome already. But any uncertainty about his coming reception was put to rest when they reached a popular marketplace called the Appii Forum, which is right here. It was about 43 miles from Rome, and Some believers from Rome heard Paul was coming, and they trekked those 43 miles by foot to meet him. They couldn't wait to see Paul. And so Paul's arrival was a huge encouragement to them, the people in Appii Forum, and then there was another group just the next city up, three taverns. It was a great encouragement for them to see and, and meet Paul, who had written them a letter some three years earlier, the book of Romans, incidentally, and now they finally get to meet him. And so that was, I'm sure, massively encouraging for them. But what we know is that it was a massive encouragement for Paul, too, to be welcomed warmly, even before he gets to Rome, by these Roman Christians meant a lot to Paul. In Rome, Paul, he enjoyed a degree of personal liberty, befitting a man who has committed no crime that anybody could level any charges against him. Plus, he's a Roman citizen. So in his quaint little rented home, Paul would accomplish a lot. In fact three of my my three favorite books of paul are ephesians philippines and colossians and all three were written from this little home under house arrest philemon was as well which is a cool book it's written to a guy who had his slave run away from him go hang out with paul and paul's knew that that wasn't a great situation so he sends the slave onesimus back to philemon knowing philemon had every right in the world to beat and punish him um but he sends Onesimus back to Philemon, saying, "This is my brother. Like I know you'll treat him well." It's a cool book to read. It's it's only I think one chapter. It's really short. Um, anyway, all those books were written under this state of house arrest. As we'll see, Paul was never lonely in this house either. He he entertained guests. Debates were held in his house, and trainees frequently came and went. Uh, guys like Luke, John, Mark, would come and visit Paul for a time and then move on would be sent by Paul off to other churches to take care of them. Not to mention, Paul was literally never alone in this house. Why? Well, there was a much more constant companion with him. See, Paul was chained by the wrist to a Roman officer at all times, day and night. Constantly chained to a Roman officer. Can you, for two years, can you imagine what, like, even just going to the bathroom, you, like, no privacy, you just, a day and night, you're chained to some Roman soldier. Lucky for that. And that's exactly right. Trish said lucky for that soldier. Because they sat there when it, when Paul did all of this activity in their four-hour shift. So while Paul dictated his letters at length, the soldiers listened. And some commentators think even contributed. They think uh, certain passages of of Paul's writing during this time, smacks of well, someone chained to a, a centurion or a soldier right there, but maybe the centurion gave him some ideas, like, hey, how about this? Which, that's an idea that I just absolutely love. The the idea of, of a Roman soldier being like, how about you change this to this? <laughs> yeah, it was most likely because he was staying um, just outside the barracks. So there's probably like a company of a whole bunch of soldiers rotating in and out. But they were there when he dictated his let- his letters. When Paul kneeled in prayer... For persecuted friends, or as he often did, pray for Rome itself, the leaders of Rome, then those soldiers would be forced to kneel right with them and engage in those prayers. When Paul outlined um, to his Jewish antagonists the fulfilled Jewish prophecies, there's there's the soldier right there hearing all about Jesus. And when Paul told stories of beatings and prison breaks, of healings and exorcisms, of shipwrecks and snake bites, the soldiers would be sucked into a world of adventure beyond anything their military lives could ever bring them into. And the result of all this, this church said, lucky soldiers. Well, yeah, Paul became very well known among the soldiers of Rome. This is Philippians one b to 14 It says, What has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Basically, Paul is saying, everybody knows why I'm in chains. All the soldiers who come and guard me, they all know what this is about. And because of it, God is being glorified. As we've seen throughout Acts, the chains of oppression thrown on by the world only serve to spread the fire of the gospel. Even the palace guards see this is a special man worthy of recognition. Just a quick aside. Angie asked me yesterday, this is the end of Acts, right? And I said, yep, this is the last sermon in Acts. And she's like, are you sure? You're not going to be like, oh, by the way, I have a bonus sermon in Acts. And I said, no, we're done Acts. But <laughs> but after our Advent series, which I don't know what it's going to be yet, after our Advent series, I'm, to bridge into our next book, which will probably be Ephesians, we are going to look at the life of Paul after Acts. So it's not acts, I didn't lie to you, Angie, but it's between when Acts ends and just the end of Paul's life, because it is fascinating. I did not know much about it. And there's a lot of goodness there that I think we can mine out. Um anyway, the reason I bring that up, um actually I forget why I brought it up. So there you go. Now you now you know. I went off on an aside and totally forget. Uh where was I? <laughs> Serve to spread the fire of the gospel? I don't, I don't know why I said that. But now you know. Let's read verses 17 to 22. Three days later, he called together the leaders of the Jews. So he's arrived in his home that he'll be in house arrest for two years. And three days into that time, he, because he can't go out to the synagogues as was his practice because he's under house arrest, he brings the synagogue to him. He asked the Jewish leaders to come visit him. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any charge to bring against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It's because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, We've not received any letters from Judea concerning you, which is, by the way, very interesting. You'd think Judea would be all over. They hate Paul, and they want to spread that hatred of Paul all over the empire, so wherever he goes, he gets discredited. So it's interesting that the the Roman Jews hadn't heard of Paul yet. Anyway, and none of the brothers who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking about this sect. That sect... Is of course, Christianity. So chapter 28 features uh, one last pair of speeches by Paul. But we don't have any record of Paul's preaching and teaching among the Gentiles, even though Rome is Gentile central. Instead, Luke focuses again on what has always been the pattern for Paul throughout his many years of evangelical mission. Go first to the Jews. This first speech, which we just read, is a very political speech. It's um, very diplomatic, I should say in that he downplays the brutal role of the Jerusalem Jews in his arrest and treatment. He doesn't mention that he was beaten by an angry mob. In fact, it's so diplomatic to the point where Paul claims that he's handed over to the Romans, but we know that it was the Romans who saved Paul from the hands of the Jews. So he doesn't frame it like that. He doesn't want to cause any uproar among these his new neighbors. But while he downplays the violence and injustice done to him by his fellow Israelites, he refuses to budge on his claims to innocence. Though the Romans saw Paul as innocent, the Jews did not. Though Paul intends no charge or harm against their people, they intend harmful charges against him. Though Paul is proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus as the fulfillment of Israel's hope, Israel itself seems intent on rejecting that hope and crushing those who do embrace it. Paul refuses to condemn the Jews who put him in chains despite their condemnation of him. But he also refuses to to back down from his purpose. And his purpose is this, announcing the hope of Jesus' resurrection. The hope of Israel culminated in Jesus. And he does that first to the Jews. The Jewish leaders follow up Paul's diplomatic statement with a diplomatic response. They haven't heard from their Jewish leadership, leadership in Judea, which is surprising, as I mentioned. So they're unwilling to commit to what Paul is saying. All throughout the empire, Jews everywhere looked to leadership in Jerusalem. And if leadership in Jerusalem is silent on this, this issue, then they're not going to commit to anything Paul is saying. They're also, however, not going to pursue legal action against a leader of a possibly dangerous heretical sect who also happened to be a Roman citizen currently appealing to Caesar. If they had taken action against, against Paul and the legal status he's under, that would have been suicide for these Jewish people. So they don't commit for Paul, they don't commit against Paul, they're very much on the fence. They are polite, they are non-committal, they are curious, but that's as close as they would ever get to the gospel of Jesus, as we'll see in the next passage. So let's read up to verse 28. By the way, we're going to read up to verse 28. You may notice there's no verse 29. There's no verse 29, and that's because verse 29 is only present in the older manuscripts, not the newer, more reliable manuscripts. By the way, when I say older and newer here, I mean relative to when they were discovered. So the... The the better manuscripts are the ones closer to the original source, so older in that sense. When I say older here, I mean older as in what they used when they first uh, translated the Bible. And when I say newer, I mean it was discovered much more recently, even though it is a much older, more reliable text. Uh, I just thought some people might be confused by that and deserve an explanation. Carry on. And so they just they just they have it there, kind of, but it's not super reliable, so... There's just, it's a mystery, missing Bible verse. There's a few of those in the New Testament. I always find them fascinating. This is one of them. Very fun for Bible nerds like myself. Um, anyway, let's read up to verse 28. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. From morning till evening, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he said, but others wouldn't believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. So they're on board with talking about things. They may not be agreeing, but they're willing to discuss until Paul says this. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's hearts has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. And as always, whenever Paul mentions the Gentiles, that's when stuff starts to happen, starts to unravel. And so it's an old pattern. Paul goes first to the Jews, but they have difficulty accepting Jesus as the Messiah. They spend all day debating with Paul and are of mixed opinions until Paul quotes Isaiah, to highlight their disobedience before dropping this bombshell on them. You know what? Since you are blind and deaf and dumb to the saving message of Jesus, I will take this saving message of Jesus where it will be properly accepted amongst the (gasps) Gentiles. They will prove good listeners, not stubbornly deaf. They will have their eyes open, not shame themselves with willful blindness. They will understand with their heart, not harden it against living truth. The Gentiles are ready and they are not ashamed of my chains, so I will take Jesus to them. As was the case in Pisidian Antioch in chapter 13, and Corinth in chapter 18, and Ephesus in chapter 19, Paul again states, with a sad air of finality, by the way, he is not; it, does, it brings him no joy to say this, but he says again that the Jews have excluded themselves from salvation, so the invitation will instead go to the outsiders, to the Gentiles. It's a reminder for us, a warning really, that there are no ears so deaf as those that refuse to hear. There are no eyes so blind as those that refuse to see. And there is no heart so impure as those that refuse to be refined. This must have been painful for Paul, who longed for his ancestral people to drink deeply of the living water that he himself had received from Jesus. It doesn't bring Paul any joy whatsoever to turn away from the Jews and go to the Gentiles. He knows that's his mission. He knows what needs to happen. But he wants all people, and especially his people, to know the saving truth of Jesus. So that's how, that's almost how the book of Acts ends. Rejection by the Jews, which is heartbreaking. But Luke refuses to end his dual masterpieces, Luke and Acts, on a note of defeat. Rather, it ends on a note of glorious success. So let's read the last two verses of the book of Acts. Let's read about the end. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's a fitting ending. A fitting ending, but a bit of an abrupt ending, don't you think? We spent over a chapter last week just reading about one boat ride. Surely Luke could tell us a few stories about Paul's two-year stay in Rome. I'm sure there's all kinds of great stories to hear, and I would love to hear them we don't have them. We know that Paul was acquitted by Nero. When we get to that very special post-Act sermon that I made my wife mad about, when we get there, we'll talk. (laughs) She's so mad, you guys. Um, We'll talk about these things. But we know that Paul was acquitted by Nero, which, good for you, Nero, but then Nero would go ahead and imprison and, and destroy Christians. Um we know that he traveled for a few years before being arrested in the mid sixties and martyred less than a year later by Nero. Um, but we don't we don't know much about what happened for Paul after Luke finished writing Acts. It would be nice to know. It seems a little strange to me that we don't know more. There are a few traditions that we'll look at, but we don't know a whole lot about the end of Paul's life. That seems strange, that abrupt ending that he spent two years there and, and everything was good. Well, to be honest, Luke doesn't really care what you or I think about his abrupt ending. He, he doesn't. He has accomplished his purpose with this passage. In many ways, the last half of chapter 28 is a summary for the entire last half of the book of Acts, starting in chapter 12, which is all about how the Jews rejected Jesus as presented primarily by Paul, who then brings it to the Gentiles instead. That's what chapters 12 to 28 are all about. That's incidentally what the last half of for, of chapter 28 is also all about. So it's chapter 28 is like a microcosm. That's exactly the pattern we see here in the speeches of Paul. Go to the Jews, rejected. take it to the Gentiles. But in another way, Luke ends Acts so abruptly with Paul in Rome because he's accomplished the purposes for the entire book, which began with Jesus commanding his apostles to be his witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, as it says in chapter 1, verse 8, right at the beginning. And The rest of the book of Acts is that command unfolding, how the church was obedient to that command. So Jerusalem, check. Judea, absolutely. Samaria, Philip did that in chapter, what was it, 8, I think. And now the greatest evangelist of all time is in the capital city of the empire that stretched to the ends of the earth. To the ends of the earth. He is in chains, true, but though his body is hindered, his passion and preaching certainly are not. He is free to spread news of Jesus throughout the city, which would in turn bring the name of Jesus across Europe, West Asia, and North Africa, and eventually the world at large. Luke's book began in Jerusalem, the center of the Jewish world, but it ends in Rome, the center of the Gentile world, on a note of triumph and glory. God's promises at the beginning of Acts have all come true. He has been in charge all along, spreading his kingdom to the ends of the earth, through compassionate community and faithfulness and persecution, right to the very end. But remember, the end is not the end. I think there's a message behind Luke's sudden ending to the book of Acts. I think there's a theological reason why he cuts it off so abruptly. I don't think it ends abruptly just because Luke has accomplished what he set out to accomplish in writing Acts. and He's like, I don't know how to end this. How about uh he was in Rome for a couple of years and everything was great. Sign off. That's it. I don't think that's the case. I also don't think he ran out of things to say about Paul or about Rome uh, or about the church. There's plenty of stories he deliberately didn't choose. I don't think he's sparing us the boring stories, nor is he building anticipation for a third volume in his masterworks. And at two in the morning, I thought it was funny to write a trailer for the third book. New, this fall, from the man who brought you the third gospel and the acts of the Holy Spirit spreading to the Gentiles, Dr. Luke Productions is proud to present Die Hard, How the Church Survives State-Sponsored Persecution, starring gladiators Joaquin Phoenix as Emperor Nero, Scar from Lion King as the lions that Christians get fed to, and a bald Bruce Willis as the bald Apostle Paul. Yippee-ki-yay, brother Christians. Coming to a papyrus near you. So I'm sorry, that was very stupid. But again, at two in the morning... I needed something to keep me going. Um, my point is, I think Paul had another reason, and it wasn't just, he's not set, it's not a cliffhanger ending for his part three. Because if there is a part three, we never got to read it. My point is, I think Paul had another reason why he ends his book so abruptly. And it's not just because he's accomplished his purposes. I think ending the book so short like that is a genius way for him to highlight the fact that the end of this particular piece of writing doesn't mark the end of what that writing piece of writing is about for us. Just because the book ends, doesn't mean the story ends. Does the story of the church end with Paul in Rome? Obviously not. 2,000 years later, here we are, the church. Did the Holy Spirit quit lighting people's hearts on fire for the kingdom once Paul went under house arrest? Of course not. Did all the acts of the sovereign Lord cease with the book of Acts? Not even close. That's ridiculous. Author Lloyd Ogilvie, and I hope I pronounced his name right. Sorry, Lloyd, if I didn't. Um, author Lloyd Ogilvie said it best when he wrote, The abrupt ending leaves us with the challenge and opportunity to allow the Spirit to write the next chapter in the book of Acts today, in and through us. It ends quickly with us wanting more, because we are the more. We are the rest of the story. We here in Clyde Christian Bible Church, we didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world was turning, or at least since around AD 63 when Luke completed Acts. Our job is to see the glorious success in the last two verses of Acts and find ways to emulate it. So just listen to the verbs that I use. To welcome all who step through the doors of our humble church building on Fridays or Sundays, or into our community and into our houses on the days in between. By the way, welcome is the word used here. These are all uh, words used of Paul in the last two verses, and I'm just extrapolating them to you. So, welcoming. Next, to proclaim the kingdom of God boldly and unashamedly, not fearing rejection, but faithfully trusting in the king. To announce Jesus as Lord and Savior to all, and to journey towards transformation together with our neighbors. To refuse to be hindered by any chain, and there's a lot of chains that I thought of, and you can think of more. I'm thinking of the chains of busyness. The chains of fear and doubt. The chains of biblical ignorance, just not knowing what scripture says. The chains of addiction. The chains of mammon, money, comfort, pleasure. The chains of self-righteousness. The chains of inadequacy. The chains of sin and slavish devotion to the idol of me. There's a lot of chains that weigh us down. But in Christ, we have the power to set, shake loose those chains, to break those chains, in fact. That we need not be hindered by any of those chains and instead set our eyes above with prayers of thanks, songs of joy, and pleas for compassion directed to our God. And I love that idea, that that's a portrait of, of us, despite whatever chains we have. Here we are pronouncing, proclaiming, uh, sharing together, uh, journeying together, just looking at what other verbs I used, refusing to be hindered by those chains and setting our eyes on, on him who's above. I love that picture. A similar thing happened when Jesus went away. When Jesus went away, it felt like the end of something. And the disciples, they just kind of milled around Jerusalem wondering, well, now what? But it wasn't the end of anything. It wasn't the end. In fact, it was the beginning. In his absence, he sent the Holy Spirit to set the world on fire. So it was more a beginning than an ending. So it is with the Acts of the Apostles, which should be known as the Acts of the Holy Spirit anyway. All of the original apostles are gone. Now, obviously. But the same Spirit is alive today. That same spirit that moved the apostles, moved the Galt family and the Fraser family and Ruth and Judy and others to start a little congregation here in, of all places, Clyde, Alberta. And with the hiring of Bob and Pat, community impact grew at an incredible rate through programs like After School Bible Club and Youth Group. One of the families that came to After School Bible Club and Youth Group was the Lance family. They stuck around for a while and their oldest son stumbled his way through faith thanks to relationships made at camps and conferences, but ground zero for his faith was right here in this building. He headed off to Bible college, met the woman that he loves more than any other, and got smacked upside the head by the Holy Spirit when a pastoral opening opening arose in his hometown. Thirteen years later, he can't believe how fortunate he is to be living and loving alongside such an excellent group of fellow disciples. And that's just a few of the acts of the Holy Spirit that led one man to catch the same fire as Peter did, and Stephen did, and Paul did. You all have your own stories, of course. I'm honored to journey with you in those stories. But you all have your own stories. And as with the story of the apostles in Acts, one major part of our story is our purpose, which is not any different for us than it was for any of our heroes that we've studied the past two years. The purpose is the same. Follow the guiding flame of the Holy Spirit, and pass along the warmth and power of his fire as we welcome those around us, making the name of Jesus famous with all boldness and without a hindrance in the words, the last words of the book of Acts. It's the same, same purpose as they had is the same purpose we have. Follow the Holy Spirit, pass on his warmth and power to those around us as we make his name famous. The end of Acts is no ending at all because the main character of the story is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The end of Acts is the beginning of our story. So we'll close with a few questions and then I have just a quick activity for us to do and it won't take long. The questions are, how will we fit in the legacy of our heroes? How will we be led by the light of the Spirit? How will we fuel the fire of our own acts of love? How will we fan the flames through community and suffering alike? How will our Lord welcome us home when our end comes, remembering that for faithful servants, even in death, the end is not the end. A little sad to see Acts go. There's, by the way, no other church that does this that I know of. Uh, Every time I tell pastors that we spend two years at a time, they they think I'm insane. Um, And you probably do too. The next one won't be two years long, because the letters of Paul are only four, five, six chapters long. But the end of Acts is not the end of the story. So as an act of reflection, as Acts comes to an end, I've come up with a brief survey kind of thing. There's only three questions. Did I put them? Oh, no, I didn't. The three questions are this, and um, Yellow, would you mind maybe distributing? What story or stories stood out for you as we studied Acts? What will you remember? Yeah, chapter 27 is really a powerhouse story. Um, and it, it it was illuminating to me too. But to me, a, Philip is a guy who stood out that I didn't know a lot about, but he is responsible for Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth as he converted the Ethiopian eunuch. He is a massive figure in the book of Acts. And I didn't know almost anything about him, so he's a guy who stood out. His story is one that stood out. So um feel free to to flip through Acts and find a story that stood out for you. And the next question goes with it. How did these stories fan the flames of your own faith? How have you grown? How has your faith been challenged and grown as we studied Acts? That's not, I'm not looking for ways for you to praise me, of course. this. I, it's only. It's the text that does this. It's the Holy Spirit in you that does this. So think of um, how did these stories encourage you, disrupt you, shake you up, um, and, and deepen your faith. And third, what mission is the Holy Spirit leading you towards? Because that's the whole purpose of studying Acts. In other words, how can you be Jesus' witness to the ends of the earth? And Clyde is the ends of the earth. Um, how can you serve him with boldness? So if you want, take a few minutes right now. Um, But if you could, if you don't do now, fill it out, bring it back. I'd love to talk about it really quick, maybe next week during service. Um, Thanks for journeying through Acts with me for the past 23 months. Uh, Let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for these acts of your servants, but we thank you even more for the acts of your Holy Spirit. And we get to taste and experience those acts even today. We are the continuation of the story. Uh, What an honor and a privilege to be your people, uh, witnessing and proclaiming you with boldness and without hindrance. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for how you fuel us. I pray that we would be faithful to take your fire and spread it to our community, to our neighbors, to our friends and family, to our enemies as well. You are good, Father. We thank you for Acts. We thank you for this 23-month journey. I pray that uh, each one of us would would come out of this journey a little bit more in love with you and with a little bit deeper understanding of faith. We praise you, Jesus, through the Holy Spirit. And uh, we give you all praise and honor, God. Amen. All right. That's Acts. Very fun for Bible nerds like myself. yippee ki Brother Christians. And now, we've reached the end.